second reading this morning is from Acts chapter 2. I will read verses 40 through 47. Hear the word of God. And with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that you would be with us here in this time of worship. We thank you for the invitation, for the call that we heard, and for the freedom to gather here. We thank you for the church, for your institution of the church, for your calling of the church. We thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit here in this place. We thank you for the redeemed who have gathered and uh, are waiting to hear from you this morning. Lord God, we pray that you would respond uh, faithfully to our stepping out in faith to meet you here in this place. We pray that our needs would be met this morning. We confess that we are a people who cannot stand alone. We are a people who stand in need of you. You are the source of our life and breath. You are our purpose. You are our direction. You are our home. We pray this day that we would turn aside from all things that distract us. We pray that we would be concerned about things that are eternal rather than things that are passing away. We pray this day for those of our number who are not able to be here because of sickness or because of travel. We ask that you would be present to them, that the fellowship of the Holy Spirit would be real and known to them this morning. Father God, there are many people that you have attached us to who are near and dear to us. People who are facing times of trial and times of suffering, and so we lift them up before you this morning in the quiet of our hearts. Pray for Dennis Rosardo, and we ask that you be present with him during this time of trial. We ask that you would strengthen his wife Liz as she 
comes alongside of her husband and cares for him. We pray for Adam Lehrman. We ask that you would strengthen him. We thank you for Virginia Timberg and ask that you would continue to keep her strong in mind and in body. We thank you for the healing that is going on in Linda Herwig's body. We ask that you continue to make her strong. We pray for Leo Heron and ask that you would strengthen his body. We remember Gloria George this morning and ask that you would be present to her even as she is unable to come out to service. We pray for Sherry's brother Bill and ask that you would strengthen him in his fight with cancer. We pray for Mary Berry and we pray that her eyes would be clear and strong. We pray for Al Panapacker and for his family. We pray for Daryl, Brother Daryl Muir. We ask that you would be with him and care for him during this time. We pray for Connie Osuch and, and for her family who surround her and care for her each day. We pray for Don Martindale and ask that you would strengthen him and restore him. Lord God, we thank you for victory in Easton Swiker's body. We pray that you continue to keep his body clear of cancer. We pray for Tom Ulmer and ask that he would recover. Father God, you have made us and you know us and you love us. We know these bodies are temporary and that we will put them off one day for glorified bodies. But while we walk this pilgrim path, we pray that we would walk it in joy and in strength. And we pray that each experience that we have would draw us closer to you and prepare us for eternity. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So this morning we continue our series of sermons through the book of Acts. We started this uh, the first Sunday of January. We will probably go, I don't know, to the middle of 2021 as we work our way very carefully through this book. There are two distinctive features about this book, two literary features that you're going to see coming up again and again. One is uh, sermons that are quoted, and the other are these uh, summaries that appear. Uh, throughout the book. There are a total of 10 sermons or speeches that are quoted at length in the book of Acts. Um, these sermons make up about a third of the content of the book. This morning we read the final words of Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost. He ends by saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. And this morning we also get the first of the many summaries that show up in this book of Acts. I'm not sure exactly how many there are. There's a whole bunch of them. Every once in a while, Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, will pause the action and will offer a, a kind of a, a generalization of the life in the church at a particular time or in a particular place. This morning we're going to take a look at the first summary statement, which runs from verses uh, 42 through verse 47 of chapter 2. In those few sentences, we get a thumbnail description of the early church. Life in the early church is important for us, not just for historical curiosity, but 
because a fundamental principle of the Protestant Reformation is that the way things were originally in the church is the way things should be in the church. Over time, institutions change and drift, but the Protestant instinct is that any change in the life and the doctrine of the church is always a deviation from what Christ intended. The Protestant instinct is to always go back to the origins to learn what it is that we should be teaching and how it is that we should be living out our faith. We cannot improve upon the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. And so this summary of the life in the church that we see here in Acts chapter 2 is important to us because it is the earliest description of the life of the church. This is the church in action as close as possible to the time of Jesus. So this morning, let's take a quick look at the final words uh, in Peter's sermon, and then let's turn the corner and think about the kind of community that was called into being on the day of Pentecost. Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost does two things. First, it explains the explosion of energy and the multi-language preaching that happened on the day of Pentecost. He explains it as a fulfillment uh, of the prophecy in Joel that in the last days the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all kinds of people, both men and women, and that they would prophesy. Okay, And we see that crazy scene of 120 people out in the streets of Jerusalem preaching in tongues, preaching in all kinds of languages. Uh, Peter explains what that's all about. And secondly, in his sermon, Peter points the finger directly at the people who are listening and he says to them, you have killed the Messiah. You knew that... Jesus had come from God. You saw his miracles. You saw that he was attested by God and you still killed him. And the people, of course, are mortified. They're convicted. They're cut to the heart. And they ask Peter and the other apostles who were gathered there with him, brothers, what should we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Repentance is a matter of changing direction, of changing our point of view. Before they heard Peter's sermon, these people viewed things a certain way and they were heading in a certain direction. But after they hear Peter's sermon, they view things in a different way now and they are heading in a different direction. And that new direction was into the church. Baptism is the sacrament that signals our incorporation, our inclusion, our entry into the church of Jesus Christ. Being part of the church, being part of the body of Christ involves a new way of life. As you all know, I trust being a Christian is not simply a matter of believing certain facts about Jesus. We know this because we know that Satan knows and believes all the correct facts about Jesus, and yet he is not a Christian. Rather, being a Christian is being uh, someone who has made a conscious decision to begin a new life that's been ordered according to the law of Christ. Listen to Jesus uh, in his great commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. 
That last part, teaching them to obey everything that I commanded you, is the new life that we live according to the law of Christ. When we talk about Christian discipleship, we don't mean learning facts and information about Jesus. Christian discipleship is a matter of acquiring new habits and a new way of life. Living out life according to the commands of Jesus. We cannot call ourselves followers of Jesus if we don't actually follow Jesus. We can't call ourselves disciples of Jesus if we don't take on the discipline of Christ. We can't say that we love Jesus if we don't keep his commandments. Jesus himself says this. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So to be in the church, which is what is signaled in the Great Commission by being baptized, to be in the church, to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ, to be a Christ lover, means turning from the old direction, from the old life, and heading in a new direction, a new life. And that life is described for us in the pages of Scripture. If you're curious, by the way, about the commands of Jesus, you should Google this sometime. You know, put in, you know, commands of Jesus or commandments of Jesus, and these lists will come up. I mean, different people have enumerated them in different ways. It's a long list. I mean, we think about the law being in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments and the 613 total commandments in the Torah. But in the New Testament, in the New Testament, there are many, many commandments that Jesus gives to his followers. Here's some of them that are very familiar to you. The first commandment of Jesus, of course, is repent. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The very first Christian commandment is to repent. And then there is loving your enemies. That's a big one for Christians. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And how about pearls before swine? Okay, It's the name of a cartoon. It's also a passage that I once preached at a wedding. Don't give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and attack you. That's the commandment of Jesus. Of course, there's the golden rule. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And then there is taking up your cross. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And serving others, of course... That's essential. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man did not came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for, for many. Those are just a few of the commands of Jesus. The Christian life consists in following this law. And yes, I know that we're not saved by following the law. But I do also know that saved people are people who take the law of Christ seriously and take that law as their marching orders. So Peter's response to the people who are crying out to him, what should we do? His response to them is, change your mind and change your direction and enter the church by baptism, enter into this Christian discipleship, enter into this new way of life that's been defined for you by the teaching of Jesus. That's Peter's answer to Christ killers. 
when they ask, what should we do? You killed Christ? Well, why not become a Christian? So that's the wrap-up on Peter's sermon, the very first sermon of the Christian era. Now let's turn our attention to what life in the early church looked like. In verses 42 and 46, we see four devotions and two locations, four devotions and two locations that characterize life in the early church. Four things that the church was devoted to and two places where they did these things. Let's begin with the four devotions. In verse 42 we read, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. So this is a summary description of the church in the first generation. It would be, by the way, interesting to think what a historian would say about the church today. What would a a contemporary thumbnail description of Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church look like? Keep that thought in the back of your mind. But first, the description that the writer of Acts gives of the church in his generation. Up front, in his first verse, it mentions four practices. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Let's look at these individually. The first practice, the first devotion that characterizes the early church is its devotion to the apostles' teaching. So the twelve apostles had spent three years with Jesus. Day and night, I get the impression, they were always together. Three years, and three years Jesus spent teaching them so that they in turn could teach other people. Remember the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. The church is built on the apostles' teaching. There is no church without the apostles' teaching. For us today, living centuries after the apostles died, we find the apostles' teachings in the pages of the New Testament, all 27 books of the New Testament. The study of the scripture is the centerpiece of Christian life. The teaching of the scripture is the centerpiece of Christian worship in our denomination. My title as pastor of this church is teaching elder. And what is it that I'm teaching? Or what should I be teaching? Well, I should be teaching nothing more or nothing less than what the apostles taught. Which, of course, is nothing more or nothing less than what Jesus taught. We cannot improve upon Jesus. We will never surpass the apostles' teaching. Which is why, whenever the world comes up with a new theory that contradicts what Scripture plainly teaches, and it does this about once a week, We reject what the secular world teaches and we remain true to the deposit of faith that we have received from the saints who've gone before us. I always think of Peter who, having been asked by Jesus if he's going to abandon him, Jesus answers Jesus, to whom shall we turn? You have the words of eternal life. 
the apostles' teaching. The early church was devoted to it. It was the foundation of the church in the first century, and it remains the foundation of the church today. The second practice that characterized the early church was its devotion to the fellowship. The word here in Greek is koinonia. This is a deep and a rich word in the New Testament, fellowship. Sometimes it's translated as communion. This is all about unity and harmony and camaraderie and partnership and mutual sharing. Paul gives us a little insight into this koinonia in Romans chapter 12 where we read, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. If the teaching of the apostles was the mind of the church, then the fellowship of the church was its beating heart. Some people are attracted to the church by its fellowship first, and then only later do they come to understand the apostles' teaching. On Friday, who was here on Friday evening? Anyone here on Friday evening? Some of you were here on Friday evening. It was fun. I like meeting in church in the evenings. We were here on Friday evening because we had a, a, a wedding here in the sanctuary. And afterward, we had a reception down in the Boyer's Fellowship Hall. Our own Angela Kudu married Gislam Bredji. At the wedding ceremony, we had contemporary music and we had traditional music. We had guitars and organ. We had black people and white people. We had Africans and North Americans. We had toddlers and people in their 90s. And together we gathered around the Word of God. And together we gathered around Angela and Gislan to pray over them and to bless them and to encourage them for this journey ahead. And after the ceremony was done, we ambled down the hall and we dug into a feast that many hands had prepared. And we gathered around tables and we shared our lives and we shared our stories. And we got up and danced. Some of us more beautifully than others, but we got up and danced. And you know what that's called? That's called koinonia. That's called fellowship. After the apostles' teaching, what marks us as the church of Jesus Christ is our devotion to the fellowship. The third practice that characterized the early church was its devotion to the breaking of bread. Now this phrase, the breaking of bread, can mean either an, eating an ordinary meal or sharing the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So when we hear that the church in the Acts of the Apostles was dedicated to or devoted to the breaking of bread, we might ask, does that mean that they were devoted to eating dinner together or that they were devoted to taking the sacrament? Well, as it turns out, this is the wrong question because we know from Paul's description in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that in the early church, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper was part of an ordinary shared meal. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper would have taken place in the context of what we now call a potluck dinner. 
And my guess is that the sacramental part was the beginning and the end of the potluck dinner. Maybe a ceremonial blessing and a prayer and breaking the bread at the beginning of the dinner. And then a ceremonial sharing of a cup of wine at the end of the dinner. But here's the important thing to see. In the early church, sitting down to eat together was a real and essential component of the life of the church. Eating together is an authentic religious experience. And this shouldn't uh, surprise us. When we remember how often the four Gospels portray Jesus eating and drinking. He spent so much time eating and drinking with people that some other people, some more religious people, complained about this. So let me say this. Shared meals can and should be sacramental. Shared meals can and should be part of the ordinary life of a healthy church. We should be inviting people into our houses and feeding them. We should be sitting down with each other at dinner and we should be doing all of this with a joyful, reverent feeling knowing that we are doing the very same thing that Jesus did with people that he was calling to follow him. Breaking bread. The fourth practice that characterized the early church was its devotion to the prayers. Now this might refer to the regular prayers that were part of the regulated worship in the temple in Jerusalem. It might mean the more spontaneous prayers that were part of the worship in in Christian gatherings. It probably means both. But the takeaway for us is that the early Christians were praying a lot. They were devoted to prayer. So how devoted are we to prayer? Are we spending real time praying to God? Or is prayer just something we do in a formulaic way in passing? There are a couple of efforts underway here at HVPC to increase our prayer time. Last fall we had a season of prayer and fasting which was important for a number of our people. I would encourage all of us to increase The time we are spending each day in prayer, time in prayer is never wasted time. I don't have to remind you of the command to pray without ceasing. You already know that every aspect of our lives will be better if we pray more. Our finances will be better if we pray more. Our church programs will be better if we pray more. Our preaching will be better if we pray more. Our marriages will be better if we pray more. So let me encourage you, and let me give you permission to encourage me to pray more this week. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Those are four devotions that characterize the early church. A devotion to the apostles' Teaching, a devotion to the fellowship, a devotion to the breaking of bread, and a devotion to prayer. May we be devoted in the same way. So verse 42 lays out for us four devotions in the early church. Verse 46 gives us two locations where these devotions were worked out. Here's what we read. Day by day. 
attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Two locations where the church conducts its business. In the temple and in the homes of members. So let's talk about these in turn. First, the temple. Well, it's no wonder that the early church met in the temple. That's where worship happened for Jews. It would take a while before Christian Jews were thrown out of the temple and thrown out of the synagogue. But initially, that's where they met. The temple, of course, was open every day. And so the Christians went there every day to pray. In the temple, they met and they worshipped God publicly and corporately. Regular, public, corporate worship is the norm for God's people in the scripture. The Sabbath comes once a week and it is set aside for regular public corporate worship and anyone who is serious about Christian discipleship should make regular public corporate worship a personal priority. The world offers us 10,000 reasons to not come to church on Sunday morning. But we Christians need to make church the reason why we are skipping those other things. When asked to attend something besides church on Sunday morning, we should be saying, gee, that sounds like a really nice event, but that's the time that I go to church, so I won't be able to attend. Think about this for just one second. Do you believe that it is the will of God that you attend a lacrosse game instead of Sabbath Worship. When God sees you standing on the sidelines of an athletic field on Sunday morning, do you think he's saying to himself, yes, they're exactly where I want them to be this morning. So if it weren't God who scheduled those other Sunday morning events to conflict with Sabbath worship, who do you suppose made those schedules? And do you really want to set your personal schedule according to the one who is always defying God? Church met regularly for corporate public worship. In the first century, they met every day. They met in public. They worshiped corporately. We do that here once a week on Sunday morning. The second location where the church was happening was in homes. The church also regularly met in smaller groups in each other's homes. And those meetings apparently involved food. Everyone loves to eat. And when people come over, it's customary to offer them some food, some hospitality, something to drink. That's what the early church was doing, meeting for dinner in each other's houses. Here at HVPC, about 60% of our people regularly participate in at least one small group Bible study. Many of our people, you know, double dip or triple dip and go to several Bible studies. Most of those studies happen in people's houses. Probably all of them should. What's the point? Why not just meet here at church, you know, this neutral place that's set up for public meetings? Why bother to let people into our private spaces or go to the trouble of straightening up our living rooms to have people over? Well, maybe you can think about it this way. If you're dating someone 
and they never invite you to their house, and they never introduce you to their family, what do you think is going on? Bringing someone into your house is an act of intimacy. You are showing those people who you are in a very personal way. We can meet people at work, we can meet people at public, and we can keep on our public faces, we can wear our masks, we can maintain the facade. But when we bring people into our homes, they get to see us more as who we really are. Let me ask you this question. Do you think that the Christian life should be one of maintaining a mask or a public facade? Or do you think that being a Christian should be real and authentic? That's why we have small group Bible studies in our homes. That's why we invite people into our houses to eat with one another. It's a way of being real and authentic. And of all the people in the world, Christians are the one who should be the most real and the most authentic. Now, notice one other thing about these home meetings. We've talked about the four devotions and the two locations. But notice that the four devotions are most fully met in the one location, in the home location. Meeting in each other's homes for small group Bible study is the perfect combination of the four devotions that distinguish the early church. Devotion to the apostles' teaching. Okay, Bible study is always central when we get together. Devotion to the fellowship. Small group Bible studies are where real fellowship happen in this church. Devotion to the breaking of bread. Showing hospitality, sharing food is normal uh, when you invite someone into your home. And devotion to prayer. Small group Bible studies are where the serious prayer happens in this church. Now let me just offer one little illustration as an aside. This past week... I had the opportunity to pray many times with many people in many different settings. But there was only one prayer that was mentioned to me after the fact as having been really important to that person. And that prayer took place in a small group Bible study. Last Monday, the Presbyterian Stogie Society met at the Fluter's house. We're studying the book of Acts. And we enjoyed, you know, great fellowship together with the guys. And we shared hospitality of snacks and drinks and cigars. And we took some special time to pray for one of our group who was having a really rocky week. And later that week, I ran into him again. And he mentioned to me how important that prayer time had been for him. That it had made a difference. That kind of stuff happens in the homes of Christians. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 and 46, they contain a wonderful thumbnail sketch of what church life looked like in the early days. It's a wonderful sketch of what church life should look like, even today. A fourfold devotion to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And a twofold location of all of this activity weekly in Sunday morning worship and throughout the week in each other's houses. If you're stopping by for Sabbath worship whenever your schedule permits, then rearrange your schedule. 
And build your schedule, build your week around your time with God. Do not squeeze God into a schedule that has been dictated by the world. Worship every week. And if you're not here on Sunday morning, I hope that you're on the road and that you're worshiping in another Bible-believing church. And if you're not yet a part of a small group Bible study, you are missing out on some of the most important stuff that we do around here. All kinds of Bible studies happen in all kinds of places. Plug in somewhere. That's where the real uh, action is. If you're unsure about which Bible study is perfect for you, Karen near Jesse is our elder who oversees. Karen, can you stand up? This is Karen near Jesse. She's the elder, okay? Talk to her. Talk to her. She'll she'll find just the perfect place for you. Not only will she find the perfect place for you, if there isn't currently the perfect place for you, she will bring another one into being. Okay, There are new Bible studies that are being created to meet the needs in the church. They're really, really important. Don't miss out on this tremendous blessing that has been offered to us. The church in the first century, all 12 apostles are there. None of them have been martyred yet. Wow, what a wonderful glimpse of what the church can and should be. May we model ourselves on those saints of old. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the wonderful testimony of what it is that you were doing there in the church in those early days. And we just pray that you would continue to build your church here Build uh, your church in our lives and in our hearts. And Lord, I just pray that uh, as we gather as your church, that we would be blessing your heart and blessing your name and and blessing the people around us. Lord, I pray that we would be uh, drawing more and more of the lost into the life of the church. I pray that as an institution, we would be very porous, very welcoming, drawing people from the outside into the inside so that they might too find their place at the table, that they too might be part of this feast. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.